So now, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. Lord, come. Just by your Holy Spirit, come. Just minister, Lord God, to each one of our hearts. You know our journeys. You know where we're at. Thank you that you love us, God. Thank you that you are for us. And thank you that you're wanting to speak to us. Now we just open our hearts. Pray a blessing upon John as he shares with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's a privilege this morning to welcome Reverend Dr. John Sweetman to come and share with us. Many of you are familiar with John. He speaks here regularly. Uh, former principal of Malian when, when I went through. So blessed to have John here. And uh, we thank you, John, for, for sharing with us. God bless. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I never really like being introduced as Reverend Doctor because when you're going to preach, people immediately think, this is going to be boring. You know, like <laughs> Reverend Doctor, like, <laughs> mate, oh, mate. <laughs> Anyway, hopefully it won't be boring. If it is, I'm very sorry. I blame Andrew for that, right? He set me up for it. I've got a little question for you. I preached here, I don't know, three or four months ago, many, many sermons ago, I know. But can anyone remember, and also online, if you're thinking about it too, can anyone remember uh, what I preached on the last time I was here? All right, yes, obviously my preaching really does have a great impact. I'll put a picture up there. Does that remind anyone or, of uh, what I... Obviously the people online remember exactly, right? It's just the people that come to church every week here in the uh, sanctuary that... Uh, Does anyone remember now? <laughs> no, it wasn't Don't Smoke. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be a bad sermon, but anyway... Uh, I preached on Zacchaeus, the little guy who was a Pharisee. Oh, some are remembering now. Uh, the little guy was a Pharisee that put his hand up and, uh, and Jesus absolutely transformed his, his life. After preaching that sermon uh, on the Pharisees, I started to think of, uh, uh, sorry, on the tax collectors. Uh, I started to think about tax collectors and I, I looked up in the Bible how many times collect tax collectors were mentioned. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're mentioned 24 times, which seems well out of proportion to the influence or the numbers they had in, in, in their culture. Like, why was the tax collectors so much emphasised and other professions we know very little about at all? So it started me thinking about that, and I'm thinking, well, why, what was it about tax collectors that, that made them so significant, at least to the gospel writers. Uh, I gave some background uh, to tax collectors last time, but uh, seeing you don't remember anything about it, just let me go over a few of these things and perhaps go a little bit deeper as, as well. Um, because the Romans had subjugated Israel, uh, then they made Israel pay taxes, as they did for all the nations that they uh, had under their control. Uh, but those taxes weren't like the taxes we pay in a sense. Like we pay taxes and, and sometimes we're very appreciative as we pay taxes because we know that those taxes at least go to fixing up things, uh, building infrastructure, providing for people in our society that don't, 
that don't have as much, you know. So our taxes at least have some good ends to them. But, but the taxes in these days, the taxes that the Jews paid went straight to Rome. They weren't to do anything in Israel. Uh, they was to build the coffers in Rome. And so paying taxes was uh, not a very popular thing at all because the money just disappeared and and went to Rome. Uh, The Romans would employ Jewish men to collect these these taxes and uh, and these tax collectors would not only collect the taxes they're supposed to do but they would skim money off the top as well if they could collect more uh, then they would they would do that. Uh, So there was a lot of ways they could collect taxes. They had taxes on on property, they had taxes on income, they had taxes on trade, they had taxes on travel, you know. So there was lots of opportunities for these t- tax collectors uh, to collect, collect money, both for Rome and, and for themselves. And, and there was no supervision, really, of these tax collectors. Like, as much money as they could get out of people, they, they would do so. Uh, they, there was no appeal that the Jewish people could make against an unfair tax because the Romans uh, controlled things. Uh, they were backed by the might of the Roman army and, uh, and the Roman law courts as well. So, so if you were told you had to pay this tax and someone was forcing you to do it, then there was little you could do uh, about that. And so these tax collectors were both powerful and also uh, incredibly despised. But the Jews couldn't do anything about it. So the only thing they could do was to try and make life difficult for Jewish tax collectors, as difficult as they could uh, within the law, the Roman, the Roman law. And so, um, and so they taught that tax collectors, they were evil people, they were societal outcasts, they were utter disgraces to their families, and, and they excommunicated them from the synagogue so they couldn't come to church in, in a sense, the way other Jews, Jews could... Uh, they, and they ostracised them from Jewish society. So they used whatever they could to at least say, we hate these tax collectors. They are bad, bad people. Uh, and so these were seen as evil enemies and treacherous traitors. Uh, and they were despised and universally hated in, in, in the nation, in, among Israelites. Um, so in a way... So I was thinking, why have they mentioned so much, though? Like, why are they talked about so much? We know that they had a place in society, but they would have been a fairly small group uh, of people. But what I think the reason that they were mentioned so much by Jesus and in the gospel writings is that they represent the group they represented. They represented a group that were right at the bottom of society, the most hated, the most. Uh, disliked people in the whole of society, the, the rottenness, the most awful, the evilest people in society were, were the tax collectors. If you wanted to pick an equivalent today, you would probably say kind of pedophiles maybe fit that, you know, people that are uh, right across society are absolutely hated, you know, because of what they've done. Even in in jails, the pedophiles have to be protected from other criminals who see themselves better than them and want to damage them and, and, and hurt them. And so that's kind of the role that the tax collectors filled. And that's why they were mentioned so much because they, it's what they represented. They represented the dregs of society. 
back in another life, many, many years ago, I was a maths teacher. And one of the things I taught about in high school maths was, was the normal curve. And uh, the normal curve is a curve, if we put it up there, that's it. Um, it's a curve that represents naturally occurring characteristics, how they, how they fit on a graph. So in other words, if you take the, the x-axis there and made that the heights of guys then right up the, the right-hand end, right at the top end, would be the real tall guys. But there's not many of them, so it's not very far up there. Uh, so the NBA players and all the, all the rest, you know what I mean? They'd be right, right up there. And then as you get down towards the middle of the curve, you can see it gets much higher, so there's a lot more people there uh, that are medium height. And then as you get down to the lower end, Zacchaeus would have been there, uh, there's, there's, there's fewer people. And so it's just height of males is distributed and females on a different normal curve were def- distributed on a normal curve. Now, if we made that curve, we put it the bottom axis, we, we made it righteous and unrighteous. Do you know what I mean? So right on the left-hand end, unrighteous. Right on the right-hand end is righteous people. You know? So the bad people on the left, the good people are right at the top. Uh, there's not as many of them, there's not as many on the bad end, there's not as many on the good end, there's a lot of people in, in between. So if you made that sort of a, a curve, then the tax collectors would be right at the bottom, all right? They'd be that worst group, the, the group that uh, uh, everyone knows that they're the worst possible people uh, in society. And so that's why they were so important, because they symbolised the very bottom, the the dregs of, of society, the worst type of, of people. All right, so understanding what tax collectors and why they were so significant in the Gospels, let's have a look at a story that Jesus told about tax collectors. The last story we looked at was a, something that really occurred. Jesus uh, uh, met Zacchaeus. But this is a story that Jesus just made up. So let's read it. It's in Luke 18. If you've got your Bibles, you can check it out. Uh, it'll be up there on the screen as well. So Luke 18, uh, starting from verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and then right at the bottom, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, I want to point out that this is a parable, right? It's a story. It's something that Jesus made up. It may have happened, but probably never happened. It was just a story to illustrate uh, what Jesus is trying to get, the point he's trying to get across. I remember... uh, when I was teaching preaching, uh, there was a student that said uh, whenever he told a story in his sermon, there was a, it was a smallish church, there was two people, a husband and a wife, that would immediately look out the window at the side. You know, they'd be watching the pulpit and then as soon as he got to a story, they'd look out the side because 
they believe that stories don't fit with preaching. You know, that what we want in preaching is the truth. We want the word. That really is the important thing. We don't want this frivolous stuff about stories, particularly if you're telling us about your family. You know, like we don't want any of that stuff. We want the real meat. Uh, and so they would make their point by as soon as he tried to tell a story, they'd look straight out the window. Uh, that um, sounds very believable, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds good. It's just not biblical. That's all. You know, like most of the theology in the Bible is taught in story form. That's how God taught it through the nation of Israel and, and through the Gospels. Uh, Jesus obviously used story again and again and again to. Sometimes to hide the truth, the Bible says. So people who weren't really looking wouldn't understand it. But in this case, at least, and many others, to try and illustrate the truth, to try and get to them so they'll understand uh, uh, the truth. And so story is really, really important to us, and it is in preaching as well. So in the story that Jesus told to illustrate a truth, um, there was two characters in it. One was the tax collector. We always already know about him. He lies right at the bottom. He represents that group, dregs of society. And then the other one was the Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees were on the other end of the normal curve, right? So if you've got the tax collectors, they represent the group on one end. The Pharisees represent the group on the other end. They're the best people, the most religious, the most righteous, the goodest that's not a word, by the way, but anyway, let me just make it up. The goodest people uh, in, in society, that's who they represent. They worked so hard to get everything right. You know, they prayed more than anyone else. They studied the Bible more than anyone else. They, uh, they did what was right. They had 600-plus laws, that they, and they worked really hard to keep every single one of, those, one of those laws. They were the good people. They may not have been all that lovable, and sometimes really, really good people uh, uh, sometimes aren't all that lovable. But, but every religious Jew, inc including the Pharisees themselves, would know that that's where the Pharisees fit in that righteous-unrighteous spectrum. You know, They fit right at the top. The Pharisees are the good ones, the, the, the ones that are closest to God, the ones that know most about God, the ones that obey God the best. That's who the Pharisees are. Uh, you may not agree with everything they did, but you had to respect their commitment and their, uh, their religiosity, <laughs> their passion for doing what's right. All right? So, so in society, that's the way it would have been seen. Tax collectors right at one end of that curve, Pharisees right up the other, up the, up the other end. Now, the problem with preaching this is we can recognise who the tax collectors are, do you know what I mean? The people that um, most of society despises, but... Who are the Pharisees uh, in, in, in today? And the trouble is, when it comes to Pharisees, we, have a, we, we don't see them as the good people. Do you know what I mean? We know that they were legalistic and hypocritical, you know, all of these things. So, so we know what the Pharisees were like. And so when it comes to saying, who's going to identify? Maybe we've got people here that would identify with the tax collectors. But none of us identify with the Pharisees. That's right, isn't it? No one would, none of you would say, I'm a Pharisee. Like, would you? Do you know what I mean? Because you, you know you're not. So what's the use of preaching this sermon? If we haven't got any Pharisees here, if they're just tax collectors and a whole lot of people in the middle, like, like what's the point of preaching this? So, so obviously I have to define Pharisee in some way that will make it relevant for us so that we can actually know who the Pharisees were. 
So this is my effort to try and define uh, the Pharisees today who might fit into this category. Those who believe that they're better than others in some significant ways. Some that see, people who see that they actually are in that top group, that are better in some ways than anyone else. Now, let me give some examples of what that might look like, and you can add your own examples, I'm sure. You know, but uh, let me just change that spectrum just a, a little bit. Uh, so the first group could be, you could put on the bottom that righteous, unrighteous thing. You could put right and wrong. Okay, so these are the people right at the top end, the Pharisees in Jesus' story, are the people who are right all the time. Who, you know, so they know more or they've studied the Bible more or they're more aware of what's going on in society and in our world. They read more or they followed the tracks in social media. Do you know what I mean? But, but you know, the people that, that know that they are writer, they are made another word up, they are writer than other people are, that they have more truth than other people. They could be the Pharisees. So you can see those people come out in social media all the time, can't you? you know, and people that are sure that they're right about everything and everyone else is wrong. They could be the Pharisees in our society. It could be the people that, with the most biblical knowledge that know that, that they know the Bible better. It could be, you know, ex-principals of theological colleges. Do you know what I mean? They could be in that, in that Pharisees group. Uh, so it could be on this spectrum of right and wrong. It's just people that know more, know that they're right, and know that other people are wrong. Uh, another possibility is another way we can look at it is, is, is those that have achieved more. Uh, so you might have on the thing uh, successful on the one end and ordinary or however you like to put it on, on the other end. But, but some of us actually have achieved more. So there are people that uh, uh, have more wealth or people that have done well in their work and have gone up the, up the ladder or or people that are very effective in their ministry and have a lot of successes behind them, you know. It could be a whole range of things. But, but those who are, uh, if we go to the next slide now, who are, are more successful, they, they're in the top group, do you know what I mean? And, they recognize, and other people recognise they're in the top group. Yeah, we know those people because they've been so successful, they've achieved so much, they've done so many things, whether that's within the church or outside the church, you know. They've got, they've got more, the houses are nicer, or whatever it might be, you know, whatever, however you regard success. But you're, you know that you're in that top group because you've actually achieved quite a lot, and that's significant, and other people recognise that as well. They could be the, the Pharisees uh, today. A third possibility is this one, which is uh, people that are self-dependent. And we live in a society that's very quick to try and blame people for the things that go wrong in their lives, you know. It's usually the government, but it can be our parents or children or whatever it might be. Do you know what I mean? But we're very quick to pass off on other people. But some of us aren't like that. We've actually worked really hard. We've achieved things. We've been our own person. And we haven't needed a whole lot of help from, from others. Uh, I'm part of a group of guys that meet uh, once a week, old guys uh, like myself, you know, and, and we often think about, you know, what life was like when we were younger and we were starting to bring up our kids and, uh, you know, we had no support. Well, we did have free universities in those days, which was a great blessing, do you know what I mean? But apart from that, we had a little support, do you know what I mean? We worked really hard and we tried things and, and, uh, and now we're at a different stage of life and we're kind of 
self-made man, you know, like, like it was hard, it was difficult, but without any help much at all, we've, we've come through and we haven't needed all those extra things. And we, it's easy for us to see other people as like, you know, they're more dependent or they're more needy or they haven't got it all together or whatever it might be, you know. So maybe they're the Pharisees. And you can go on, like you can put your own spectrum there. You know, it could be those who's, um, you know, who have done well with bringing up their families or in the process of bringing up their families. We're doing it better than what other people have done or are doing at the moment. Do you know what I mean? You could put it a whole of things, but things where, where we feel that we have achieved more or done more or have earned more than, than, than other, some other people at least. Uh, they could be the Pharisees today. Those who believe that they're better than others in significant ways. So in Jesus' story, these two guys from opposite ends of the spectrum, the really, really good guy and the really, really bad guy, are coming to the temple to, to pray, as people did. This is private prayer. There'd be services and things there, but this is private prayer. They're coming uh, to pray uh, in the temple. Pharisee and the tax collector, the pastor and the pedophile. Uh, and they're both of them, the good guy and the bad guy, and they're both talking to God. So the Pharisee, Jesus mentions first in his story, he stands up and says, uh, I thank God, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even tax collectors like this guy. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I've got. And he actually sounds like it's going to be a praise psalm when he starts. Uh, he says, God, I thank you. And this was very common. God, I thank you uh, for the things that you've done. We've done that this morning. God, I thank you for your creation or your blessing or your goodness in dying on the cross for us and, or your resurrection from the dead. Lord, I thank you for all of those things. It sounds like that's the way uh, it's, it's going to go. And uh, he's, he's got a lot to, to offer. He says, uh, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Now, if, if you fast regularly, you will know that that fasting is tough. <laughs> it's supposed to be tough. I fasted yesterday, in fact, you know, and made I made about two o'clock. Like I am getting really hungry, <laughs> and uh, fast for faster for a particular reason, you know. This guy fasts twice a week, probably Mondays and Thursdays. We think, you know, uh, Mondays and Thursdays the Pharisees used to fast, like two days a week fasting. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? And he also gives a tenth, a tithe of, of all that he, that he gets. All that he gets, he, he goes online and he tithes it. You know, like, this guy's, this guy's impressive. And he knows that. He makes sacrifices. He makes sacrifices with his stomach and he makes sacrifices with his money. They are two things that are very close to most men's hearts, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? My stomach <laughs> and my money. <laughs> And this guy makes sacrifices, significant sacrifices, with, with both of them, for God's sake. And he points that out to God. But this is not a praise psalm. As you look at it more closely, uh, God, he's not praising God for his grace and his goodness and his mercy. Uh, he's actually praising himself for his, for his effort. His prayer is full of first-person pronouns. God, 
I thank you that I am not like other people. I, f- I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And it's just full of himself. And comparison with the tax collector over there at the back of the, back of the church. It's not a praise psalm. He might appear godly, but it's all about him and his achievements and his comparison with others, not about God and his grace. There's a subtle danger for us, you know. It's so easy to move from thanks and praise to God for his goodness and his mercy to some sort of sense that I have these things, these things are good because of something I've earned or something that I've done or the way that I am. There's a well-known joke about this, and many of you have probably heard it, about, about this story. Our Sunday school teacher is, is teaching this uh, story to her class and explaining it all and goes through the tax collector and the, and, and the Pharisee. And she finishes and end up by closing with the, the, her little talk by saying, Now, children, let's praise God that we are not like this Pharisee. You get it? <laughs> it's so easy for us to move from thankfulness to pride. <laughs> to think that in some ways, because of God's blessing or God's mercy or God's goodness on us, that somehow we're somehow better than other people. The approach of the tax collector is very different. He's a broken man. He realises his place on the spectrum, on the normal curve. He didn't understand normal curves, but he understood that he was right there at the bottom. He knew that. He was not a good man. It's easy for us sometimes, because tax collectors are mentioned so much, and often in a, in a fairly good light, you know, Zacchaeus responds and changes, and this guy in the story is actually the hero of the story. It's easy to think that God sort of saw, or Jesus sort of saw tax collectors as the heroes, <laughs> the good people. <laughs> But that's not true at all. He, Jesus made some fairly disparaging comments about tax collectors. Let me give you two examples. In Matthew 5, uh, 46, where Jesus is talking about loving and praying for your enemies, he says, you know, it's, it's no use just loving and praying for those who love you. <laughs> like, like he says, like even the tax collectors, like even those rotten people do that. And then in Matthew 18, 17, uh, talking about how do you deal with sin among, well, we would say among Christians, among followers of Jesus, you know, what do you do? You, uh, you, you confront them over the sin, you try and deal with it, you know. But if they refuse to accept that and if they refuse to repent, then Jesus said, treat them like pay, a pagan or a tax collector. So, now, that may be a cultural thing he's explaining there, but you can see that Jesus doesn't say, oh, these are the good guys, like these are the best guys. They weren't at all. They were rotten people. And their actions were despicable. And this tax collector knew that in the story. And his response was to stand at the back where probably he couldn't be seen, but he certainly could be heard, uh, and to beat his chest with his head bowed as a, as a sign of just deep, deep sorrow because he knew what his life was like. He knew that he was a mess. He knew that he'd damaged so many people. He was in agony 
because he knew that he was approaching with his sin, glorious, perfect God. And uh, there was no way that he could make up for what he'd done wrong. And it was physically and emotionally wrecking him, destroying him, coming out in huge, great big sobs. I remember a, a proud Scotsman reacting like this. Uh, Jim had uh, come to church for many years. He had a believing wife. And, and so for his, of his respect for her, he'd, he'd attended church and uh, was kind of part of the, the church family. But he'd managed to resist God and, uh, as he'd sat in services after services after, uh, after services. And, and then um, one morning, one Sunday morning, uh, the enormity of his sin and his constant rejection of God's gentle words and loving words to him finally hit him. And he came to me after the service and said, John, could I, could I speak with you? And uh, I said, sure. And we went into my office and he sat there and he just burst out sobbing. He, he, was, he was wailing, you know, like just wailing loudly. Over his, the, his, his brokenness, over his, his rebellion, over his hard-heartedness. He just saw it all and suddenly it just overwhelmed him. And his wife was there too and uh, she was shocked, you know, like this guy was a, a Scotsman. <laughs> like he didn't show any emotion and here he is wailing and uh, she was both... Uh, Incredibly surprised uh, by it and absolutely overjoyed <laughs> as God touched this man. And that's what's happening in this story with the, with the tax collector. He's, uh, all he can do is, is ask for mercy. Beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Greek word mercy there is often used uh, to translate the Hebrew word, uh, cover. And so what he's really asking God is just cover. Please, will you cover my sins? There's, there's nothing I can do about it. I am a broken man. I am so far away from you. I've done too many dreadful things. And, but could you, would it be possible for you just to have mercy, to, to cover that all over? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And of course, God answers his prayer. Incredibly, this Man that was right at the bottom of the heap, the most, one of the most despised men that there could be, had done many things wrong. Jesus says in his story that the tax collector, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. His sin was covered. He was, he was put right with God. Everything, all that he'd done was all covered over. We know eventually because of Jesus' death and resurrection that, that God's response was, sure, I'll cover it all. The Pharisee, on the other hand, uh, went home and he probably didn't realise it, but he got no response from God. He was left wallowing in his achievements and was a million miles away from the presence and the pleasure and the, the mercy of God. Jesus is making the point here, it says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Jesus was making the point that 
His kingdom is about humility. Humility towards God and humility towards others. You either have confidence in yourself and recognize that you're better than some other people and get humbled by God, or you humble yourself and know that no matter what you are or where you've been, you still feel so far short of God and humble yourself and then you get exalted by God. That's what Jesus said. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those are the two options. We either humble ourselves and get exalted by God or we exalt ourselves, defend ourselves, protect ourselves, compare ourselves and get humbled by God. Those are the two and we get a choice. I don't like being humbled. Like I don't. I find shame a dreadful thing. Part of it's I blame my personality, but I'm not blaming other people now because I feel that I have to take responsibility myself. You know, I just, I just really, really struggle with shame. Uh, last week, uh, last Monday, I think it was, uh, Deb was, I was in Calandra and Deb was in Brisbane and she'd asked me if, she'd, if I could fix this painting that had fallen off the walls and the thing had smashed. You know, and I'm not a very practical person, but I got the super glue out and I was kind of gluing together this frame and, and, and all the rest. And uh, I was doing it on the kitchen bench and stupidly didn't put enough protection down or whatever. Anyway, some of this super glue got onto the bench. It, the packet had promised that it never drips. Like, you know, and I just had to be- I believe that, do you know what I mean? And it did drip and it dripped onto the bench. It was a stone, Caesar stone bench or whatever it is. And... And I was horrified because that bench is Debbie's pride and joy. Like, underneath God, it's right up there kind of thing. <laughs> so I thought, I've got to get rid of this super glue that's dripped onto the bench, you know. So I tried. Like, I honestly tried for about an hour. I tried everything without wrecking the bench. And since then, I've ordered some stuff, by the way, so don't come to me with all your solutions afterwards, all right? I have ordered some stuff that I hope will eventually move it. Do you know what I mean? But I tried all day. Like, I'm panicking, you know. Like, I know what Deb's response is going to be, you know. So, so I'm trying to get rid of it, scrape it off, put stuff on it, rub it. Nothing moves it. Like, the thing's glued on onto the bench. Surprise, surprise. Do you know what I mean? And nothing will, nothing will move it, you know. To be honest, I thought about not telling Deb. Because it wasn't real obvious first when you first look at it. Do you know what I mean? And I thought, after a few days, things might change, you know, when she discovers it kind of thing. And I honestly thought about that because I hate shame. But um, God sort of convicted. I think it was God. Maybe it was just my conscience. But I think it was God convicted me and said, no, you've got to tell Deb about this. You know? so, so here I was thinking, oh, no. <laughs> so anyway, Deb came in. First thing I said, darling, I've... Uh, I've damaged uh, the bench she said show me where (laughs) (laughs) so I walked over and pointed to it and uh, and you know doing that was both incredibly humbling and wonderfully freeing do you know what I mean like it's humbling and it's shameful and you've made mistakes and you've messed it up you know I did point out that it was her painting that I was repairing but anyway (laughs) but but it was also incredibly freeing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've got no secrets here. I don't have to hide anything. Like, this is the truth. And the beautiful thing she said, oh, she said, I can't even see it. 
Why? Why didn't I know that? (laughs) And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Like, humbling ourselves is actually an incredibly difficult thing to do and the most freeing thing we can ever do because God says, I'll I'll cover it all over. (laughs) I'll cover it with my mercy and through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's all covered. It's gone. You say, but look at it. What? I can't see anything there. Because Jesus is covenant. Many of us find humility difficult. Uh, we see ourselves somewhere on the righteous side, maybe not right up the top, do you know what I mean? But somewhere on that kind of righteous side and of that continuum. And uh, we see ourselves um, perhaps better than at least some people on the other side. Uh, we work harder, we're, we're more right, we've achieved more, we pray more, we try hard, uh, we've, our kids are doing better than other people's kids are. Do you know what I mean? Like whatever it is, we, we so easily try and justify ourselves and put ourselves somewhere that at least we're, we're better than some people. And, and on that continuum, it looks like you can do that, you know. The fact is that is not reality. Let me show you what reality is if we go on to the next slide. That's reality, isn't it? Like, like God is, and I, could, I should have put God a lot further up there, but that was as far as I could get on the slide. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's where God's at, and that's where we're at. So what if we're a bit better than someone else? What difference does it make? Look how far short we are of God. We're still in the unrighteous side of things, very clearly on the unrighteous side of things. And the Bible says that our righteousness... It's like filthy rags. <laughs> In God's sight, whatever you've done, whatever you've achieved, I'm blessed by God by all means, but don't think that that's worth anything as far as God says, God's concerned. This is the way things are. Our righteousness might be truly better than someone else's. We might be more right. We might have worked harder. You know, we might have achieved more, we might have more wealth or whatever it is. You know, we, we might be a bit better than some other people, but, but we fall so far short of what God wants, what God intends. That's the way things are. And as we recognise this, we come humbly before God. Do you know what I mean? Like we do come humbly. And many of you come humbly here this morning, you know, like you're desperate for God. You want God. You want to meet him. You want him to release you and forgive you and heal you and make you whole. Like, like that's why you're here humbly, just seeking God and wanting God. And, and when, we, when we take that attitude, we're not looking at what other people are doing. We're looking at us and God. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we humbly, come humbly before God and we treat others with humility and grace uh, as, as well. But some of us don't. Some of us uh, come and... We're trying to justify ourselves and trying to make up for what we've done or trying to look at others and think, well, I'm better than others at least. That's one good thing. And uh, we miss out on all God's grace and all God's mercy and all God's beauty because we're trying so hard to do it ourselves and we think that we can. How could Jesus' story have finished differently? Like, could the Pharisee, like if, if we get rid of all that we know about the Pharisees and just see the Pharisee as what he represents in this story, a, a, a good person, seemed to be a good person. How could this story have ended differently from the ending of it? 
Let me tell you an up-to-date story that I think shows a, a different ending. Uh, some of you heard of a guy called John Mark Comer. Uh, he's a writer on Christian spiritualities. He's still a fairly young guy, as you can, as you can see. And, uh, and he's very well recognised right throughout the world. He writes brilliantly. Uh, it's all about resting in God and being gods and not trying to uh, force God to do things or be, you know, and deepening at the really deep level our relationship with God. Right? And so he writes on all these areas, having more space in our life for God and all of this. You know? And he's an expert and uh, practices it really well. Do you know what I mean? Like, like he's, and, and he's built a church in, in Portland, a church called Bridgetown, and you know, it's a, it grew a church. And, and so he's, a, he's a, in a good sense, he's the Pharisee. Do you know what I mean? Like, like he's right at the top there. All of us would say, yeah, John Mark Comer is a really good guy and got a great heart for God and practices what he preaches. Do you know what I mean? Like, like he's really good. He's right up that end. Uh, in 2021, he felt that he had to stop pastoring the church, uh, that it was putting a lot of pressure on him, and his main gifts are in teaching and writing, and that he had to focus on those things. And so the church, they found uh, another senior pastor coming from outside the church, right? He came from New York. So he came to, to Portland to pastor this church, another younger, even younger than John Mark Comer, you know, so a young guy called Tyler Statton. But John Mark Comer stayed in the church. So you think, how's this going to work? Like, like a church that just loves and respects this bloke so much, that's built on his ministry, and then someone else comes in from outside that doesn't even have those, necessarily, those values and direction and comes inside, imported in, and becomes the senior pastor, and the ex-senior pastor stays in the church. How on earth is that going to work? And recently I, I heard Tyler Stanton, Stanton talking about, about how well the transition went, and the guy said, but how, you know, there's so many dangers in that. How? He said, well, he said, John Mark Comer was just such a humble guy. He said, let me give you an example. He said, in, on Sunday morning, I, I'd preach, and, uh, and afterwards, I would give an appeal, as Bridgie sometimes does too, do you know what I mean, for people to come forward for prayer and that sort of thing. He said, every Sunday, John Mark Comer would be the first forward for prayer. Now, isn't that incredible? Like, here's the guy that's written the books on spirituality. Here's the guy that knows it all, practices it all, loves God, loves people. Do you know what I mean? All of these things. And yet, here in the service, and this is what the Pharisee (laughs) could have been, here in the service, he's the first to come forward and say, I need help. I need people to pray for me. I, don't, I can't do it by myself. I, can you come and stand with me and pray for me? That is humility. That is a beautiful thing. And that's what the Pharisee could have been, but he didn't in Jesus' story. He thought it was about him. Jesus said, For all those who exalt themselves, who see themselves up the end of the curve and some normal curve in some way and feel that they're better than other people, all those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves, like the tax collector just crying out to God for mercy, they'll be exalted. There's the two choices. We humble, we, we exalt ourselves, we hang on to at least we're better than other people. I'll hang on to the things that we've done. And, and we miss it all. And 
God humbles us in the end. Or we humble ourselves and say, God, I know better than anyone else. <laughs> I just need your mercy and your grace. I'm here to seek you. Lord, I fall so far short. Please have mercy on me. Cover. Cover my brokenness. And exalt. And God says, I'll exalt you. <laughs> I'll give you the best. You're the biggest in the kingdom. You're the most important in the kingdom. And the thing is, we get to choose. Well, in a way, we get to choose. <laughs> we can choose now whether we humble ourselves or exalt ourselves. Uh, in the end, God will do what he chooses to do. <laughs> Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves, they'll be humble. Let's pray, hey? Lord, I just want to pray for many, many humble people here, Lord, that are just desperate and hungry and thirsty for you. But recognise, Lord Jesus, that there's a lot of brokenness in their lives and a lot of mixed motives and even some comparison with others at times. But, Lord, recognise how short they fall of what you really would want them to be and, and cry out to you for mercy, Lord. And Lord, those are the great people in the kingdom. <laughs> and we ask, Lord, that they might be exalted even this morning. They might be exalted, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those that in some way try to justify themselves or try to compare themselves with others, Lord. And we all do that at times, I know, Lord. But some of this is ingrained in us. And uh, I pray, Lord Jesus, that right now that they will be humbled and not wait for you to humble them, uh, Lord Jesus. Please, Lord Jesus, we each of us is in the same boat here this morning. We're sinners crying out to you for mercy. We're broken people looking for your healing. We're desperate people longing and seeking your grace in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that we go from this place this morning justified. And I praise you for Thanks, John. I don't know about you, but I was listening and I was just, aren't you thankful for the Word of God? Everything in our world and even our internal talk sometimes can say, you've got to have it together, you've got to work harder. But in the end, what, what's God looking for? And God is just looking for a humble heart, an open heart. We can bring that, like as John said, in response today. Just bring a humble heart. I'm just reminded as John was speaking of this passage in Isaiah 6, it says, this is what the Lord said. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. Where, where am I going to live? What are you ever going to make for me if I created the whole world? What, what is God looking for? He says this. He says, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my God's not looking for us to have it all together. He's not looking for us to do all sorts of things for Him, to have it together, achievement. He's looking for a humble heart, and we can bring it. As John said, sometimes it's hard just to come clean, to come open, to come humble. But this is what I want to encourage us to do this morning. Even as we worship in this, this last song, even just where you are, just come humbly for God. God, forgive me. Have mercy on me.
and receive that forgiveness. That's all he's asking of us, just the humility and the openness. We don't need to hide anything from him. His love is there for us. His grace is there for us. His forgiveness. And that's where the refreshment and the renewal comes. No more hiding, just opening ourselves up before God. We're going to sing in a moment, but you can, you can you know, pray that prayer in humility wherever you're standing. Or if you would like prayer, as pastors, we're here to pray for you too. So please come forward. Maybe the start of this year you want to say, God, here I am. Have mercy on me. I need you. I need your help in my life. If you want to do that and just ask for prayer, we'd love to pray for you too. But let's stand and worship God and bring our hearts before him this morning. Let's do that now.
God, we want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for the God that you are. A God who takes us in that place of humility, the place of brokenness, Lord. And you accept us. You love us. Your grace is for us. And Lord, you actually renew us and you rebuild us. And you're continuing to do that, Lord, as we, as we come to you humbly, God, no matter how long we've been on the journey. Lord, you continue to graciously work with us and shape us and give us more and more life, Lord God. And so we thank you, God, that you are a gracious God. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. We receive that today. Fill our hearts with your love, we pray. And continue to build us into a, a, a humble people, people with a soft heart, a responsive heart, to who you are and what you're saying to us, to the the conviction in our lives, we pray. Bless each one here, we pray. Lord God, we, we continue to ask, Lord God, that you show us more of who you are. And Lord, use us to build your kingdom near and far, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's been great having you here this morning. If you're new, we'd love to meet you. So please hang out for a, a cup of coffee. If you still need prayer, the, the prayer team will be here. and would love to pray with you as well. But thanks so much and we look forward to seeing you next week. And the, the letters for the persecuted ch- church, you can write them in the foyer and out in the courtyard too. Thank you so much.